Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Welcome everyone and welcome to this week's guest, Mariana Tagovnik. Mariana, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Ian? Very good. Thank you. Wonderful. Now, you've written a lot of books, but at the moment you've got a, well, you said it's probably been out for a little while now, but you've got a, a new book, which is where this conversation was instigated because it's very much around elements of grief. Right. Crossing back. Right. I love the title, Crossing Back, Books, Family, and Memory Without Pain. Yes. Tell me you. a little bit about the book. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it actually is a sequel to another book that I wrote uh, when I was quite a bit younger, in my uh, early 30s, mid, maybe mid-30s. And I was writing about um, um, having grown up as an Italian-American woman in Brooklyn. That may not mean much in Australia, but in... Um, in, um, in, in New York, it was a specific kind of social coding and uh, Italian-American women were not expected to have professional ambitions and um, were expected at most to be uh, typists or receptionists. Not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but there was a, a kind of um, funneling. Of, and um, the book is about uh, ending up as a college professor and um, doing that in part by marrying into a Jewish family, which had a very different set of values, and a, not that I wouldn't have become who I became without them, but I entered a, a, a sort of a different social milieu. So this, that was a book about um, crossing from one social class to another social class, yep. uh, one kind of uh, social status to another social status, um, one psychic status to another psychic status. And it was also about the death of my first child in infancy, which happened when I was uh, during in my first job as a professor which was at Williams College, kind of a very Tony New England college. So, and as I was finishing that book, my father died, but that was a coincidence. So my son's death, my father's death. So I suppose it wasn't, it wasn't a memoir about grief uh, but it was a, a memoir about life transitions. And so when my mother died, um, and um, that was, it was just, in, it, was a, it, it took me by surprise how, um, and I, would, I wouldn't say I was in grief, I would say I was in denial of grief yeah, uh, right. for, for a while. Um, and it, was, it wasn't denial that she had died, but I, I, I was fine. I was just, I was just, mm. 
but I was also I, I also moved like three times <laughs> in, in two years. Um, I was fighting with my husband a lot, and we had been married a really long time. Um, I was just like a restless soul, and um, I didn't know what that was about. So I started writing um, a little bit about it. I started reading books because that's the kind of person I am. I was reading classics. But at the time, I thought I was writing a book about reading the classics. And then I said, oh, but gee, they kept, they kept talking about me and my mother and my brother who died uh, uh, within a year of my mother. Um, and you know, what was that about? And as I began to put it all together, um, I realized that a, it was narratively a little bit of a mess at that point. Uh, but also that the thread um, was crossing back and it was a sequel to this earlier book. And once I got hold of that and eliminated all of the extraneous material, I'm a writer, so the, the, the form of the book began to emerge and that was it. And I, I still didn't think of it as a grief memoir, um, but I thought of it as um, a book about some things I had learned in, in, in the process of, of, of uh, owning grief. Yep. Uh, since I did not want to own grief, I'm Italian American. I thought it was shameful to own grief. Um, but um, in the process of owning grief, I, I discovered some things and I thought that I wanted to pass them on. So that was the origin of this book, um, which is um, it's it's a I hope a very accessible book. Um, it's written in chapters that can be individually digested um, and um, um you know, it refers to a lot of other books, but it's not in an academic way. It's in a very person-to-person -person kind of way. Mm, love it. I'm, I'm, personally, I find those the easiest reading books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's so much to unpack there, and, and we'll get through all of it. The, the bit that I'm just drawn to then, like, it's got so much personal meaning through this book, like, and you talked about, I wanted to pass it on. So is that part of the passion around the book is to be able to share that knowledge for people who are going through similar experiences? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't, I thought about, I thought about, is this a self-help book? And I didn't really think it was a self-help book. It was a book for me. And yeah. I, the writing was helpful for me. But at some point I became aware that what I had to say might be helpful to other people. Uh, for example, uh, one of the things that um, I talk about quite a lot in this book and um, it, it rubbed one particular reader the wrong way. And I thought, oh, that is, you are wrong to be rubbed, lady. Um, yeah. But um, I talk a lot about yoga and meditation. Now I had done yoga for a long time, physical yoga. Um, but after my mother died, I, I, I did one of the crazy things I thought of, because you do think of crazy things. Oh, what do I do? I think I'll move three times is one of the things I did. Um, <laughs> Uh, what do I do? And at one point I thought, um, and I'm, I'm so, I have short arms, I have short legs, I'm not a yoga body. But at one point I thought, oh, I'll learn, I'll do teacher training in yoga. And I was, I, I was writing something in my mind that was called the reluctant yogi. And so, and that wound up getting folded in here. But one of the things I do in this book is to describe some uh, yoga techniques of meditation. I mean, this is not a book about how to do physical poses, yeah. but there are some uh, meditation techniques that are talked about which I found very helpful. And uh, after my mother and brother died, I, I started meditating uh, pr uh, pretty much 18 minutes every day. And it just, um, it just changes your perspective. Um, I, I understood why, um, because it's putting you in, in the same way that the other things I was doing um, uh, was putting you in a long perspective, which made you get out of your own 
perspective and, and, and made you realize that um, not so much that this has happened to other people before, although it certainly has, but that there's a, there's a kind of um, this context, it's not just you and it's not just this moment and you can observe yourself in the moment and there's something not inherently comforting about that, but it's a start to be able to uh, look at it. Um, in yoga, it's sometimes called the witness mind um, and it, right. it, um, it detaches you from your grief. It doesn't tell you you're wrong to grieve, uh, but it, it gives you an angle on your grief that you might not have had before. Love that. Yeah, so that being able to detach yourself from the grief is so yeah. powerful. For me, yeah. meditation was like a lifesaver life for me going through as well. For exactly what you just said, you're able to detach from it long enough to be able to get some make some sense of it and some awareness around it. So can you explain a little bit more about how that played out for you? Because I know there'd be other people listening who might have thought about meditation, they're not sure of it, but haven't really seen the benefits of it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, it, the, the, fir the first key to it is, is, is breathing and, and recognizing your breath. And uh, I, some, I, I teach college um, and I, st I sometimes do this with students when we're in a stressful moment. And, you know, just the simplest thing is to just breathe in really, really deeply, really deeply, really slowly through your nose and hold your breath and then breathe out very, very slowly through your nose. And if you repeat that twice, you immediately begin to understand that there's a kind of calming function that goes with the breath. Yeah. Um, in the yoga, I, I talk a little bit in this book about different yoga traditions and I'm not big on in part because I'm not physically adept at yoga. I'm not big on um, traditions like Ashtanga, where you have to be very buff to do it. I do do physical yoga every day. But for me, the most important part of yoga is the meditation. So you do the breath. And then um, if you continue to do the breath, and, and you can just focus on the breath, and you can do it just for a couple of minutes if you want. That's it. Um, or you can imagine um, some traditions like to imagine a candle in front of you. And yeah. so you can imagine that. You can actually have a candle in front of you if you'd like. Uh, the tradition I use um, does um, mantra, which are sound things, uh, very simple ones. You can do just Om Shanti or just Om or nothing uh, if, yep. if, if, if you want. Um, and then it's like um, the effect is a little bit like for people who uh, pray in church. It's like praying in church or chanting or Gregorian chants. After a while, your mind begins to still. And when your mind begins to still, um, it just opens up and you begin to connect to larger perspectives. And that sounds very mystical and people don't believe it, but uh, I've gone to a lot of yoga classes, a lot of meditation classes. And one of my favorite stories, um, there's a, it's, this is not my major studio, but there's a, a school called Integral Yoga, um, yeah. uh, which is very, very gentle and very, very uh, unegotistical. And they, they had a studio which has since been demolished for the ever-present New York condo. But we, we did a, a yoga session, we came, a meditation session. We came out of there, and there was a guy who had never been there before. And he said, man, that was weird. It was like my grandmother was in there. And I, wow. I said, oh, she probably was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important to mention at that point that not everyone's first meditation experience is like that, right? <laughs> Uh, but I think that the, you, you touched on something that's really important for people just starting out is the breath. Like the, the breath, the breath. Yeah. 
and you have to you have to kind of relax into it. My first meditation experience was by accident. I got the time of a regular class wrong, and I went and I was listening to this yoga teacher, and I said, "Oh yeah, oh sure." And then he came around and you know put his he put your hand over your forehead to sort of intensify the medication, and I started crying. And I, I wasn't in especially in a grief moment then, but I started crying, and um, that doesn't usually happen, but it sometimes does. And you know you just don't know. Uh, but I know I think meditation is a, a really, really major tool, um, yeah, for anyone really, but especially in, in, in grief situations. Yeah, 100% well said. Thank you for sharing that part of the story. So this this current book, uh, I think a lot of us, when we, we start that intention of helping people, we may not, depending on how we come at it, we may not realize it, but it, ultimately it ends up being very cleansing for ourselves yeah. so has that been the case for every book that you've written because how many books have you written now <laughs> i'd have to count i would say i've published about eight yeah i have two that are sitting in my computer right now uh, and they're both novels so that's another uh, new departure for me yeah um, but uh, about eight um and uh well one very kind critic a while ago now uh said that my described one of my favorite books, which is called Gone Primitive, as a, as a kind of gift to my own culture. And I, was, I, I you know, I, whether it is or not, I, I really valued that. And I thought, man, that's great if you can give a gift. So I've always kind of had that in the back of my head that, um, you know, academics can write books for each other, but why bother? Um, and so I've always tried to write for some kind of general public. And I, I enjoy it when a book gets a little attention in the world. So we use a bit, bit more specific around crossing back in your yes. most recent book. Yes. If if you like, if you're looking at it from that perspective of being a gift, what, what are some of those moments that you talk about in there that are from a very personal nature, and how? What what do, what were you able to learn oh, oh, through right. that process yeah. that that you can pass yeah. on to other people about about dealing with that sort of grief? Yeah, particularly, the, particularly what you said about your mum about that being quite a shock to the system. Yeah, that was a shock to the system. My mother uh, was um, had it was one of these women who was so strong. The word I always used about my mother was strong. And uh, when she was ninety, she there were very sudden, very subtle signs like she didn't want to cook three courses of Sunday dinner anymore, and you know, things like that. And um, by ninety one. Uh, it was clear she was anemic, and then of course it turned into colon cancer. Um, and uh, she was still extremely healthy and very vital. Uh, they did uh, surgery for colon cancer, and she had a stroke right afterwards. And um, um, it, was, it was a short period, maybe three, four weeks of the, the aftermath of the stroke, um, which is a very emotional thing. So if you hear emotion in my voice, it's because it, it's an emotional thing. And then she died. Um, and it was, it was um, my mother died. You know, how could that be? And there's the moment of, you know, oh, my God, I guess that means I'm next in line, as people cheerfully tell you on these occasions. Yeah, wow. <laughs> but also, I, I, there was, was there unresolved stuff with my mother? I guess there was. I, I, I like many people. I took her for granted. 
Um, you know, I did my weekly phone call. <laughs> oh, I've got to call mom. And how my mother was Italian. How are the tomatoes this year? You know, yeah. you're cooking. You know, how's 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 aunt this? How's aunt that? But the the, the deeper conversations rather rarely happened with my mother, and there was deep stuff in her life. Um, uh, I can come to that later. But the, one of the things that I think would be useful for your listeners is that I, I learned that it was not just my mother's death and not just my brother's death. I had a much more ambiguous kind of relationship with my brother. Uh, but it's a, again, it's a shock when your only sibling dies because now your birth family's gone. Oh my God, yeah. birth wow. family's gone. Um, but um, I also learned that I had never really processed my infant son's death um, when I was quite a bit younger. And, uh, you know, life had gone on. I had two daughters. I had a career. I was still married to the same man. Um, it wasn't something that I thought about all the time, but it was also something I had never processed. And so it was like all this stuff was just kind of sitting in my, in my psyche, uh, waiting to overtake me. And it, it did. And so I writing about that, you have to, when you're writing, you're kind of, you're putting together the pieces, you're detaching the strands. So, um, I mean, something that people do um, is to write whether they're not going to publish. Yeah. Uh, whether they're going to publish it or not, and just doing just the act of detaching the strands, whether mentally or in words, can be a very helpful thing because uh, it can help you see where some of this is coming from. Now, with my mother, I had a certain amount of guilt as well. <laughs> I have to say guilt. Oh, my gosh, guilt. Um, when my mother was going to have her colon surgery, um, oh, I hope I don't get choked up, but it's I'm not. You're not going to see me crying, folks. You might just hear a little choking up in the voice. Um, the uh, when my mother was having her colon surgery, my mother's in her is 90. You know, she's not a young woman. Um, I had I was supposed to be giving a keynote address at a conference in Bologna, and the, I was that very day, that very day. And my brother didn't want her to have the surgery. Her late life partner did want her, did not want her to have the surgery. Sorry, my brother did want her to have surgery. My, my, her late life partner did not. Um, and it would have been more convenient for me if she didn't. But I said, oh, no, she has to have the surgery because my brother said so. And then it had these really disastrous consequences. I, I told myself I wasn't going to go to Bologna. She said I should go, just come back. You know, when, when, you know, three days later, no big deal. She said I should go. And I, I persuaded myself that it would be a sign of bad faith if I didn't go. And so I, you know, she got through the surgery. I saw her in recovery. I talked to the doctor. I f took the, the taxi to JFK Airport. I got to Bologna. And there was a message from my husband saying my mother had had a stroke. Oh, you know, wow. man, man. So there was a lot of guilt about that. And also while I was gone, my brother uh, let them start giving her a f uh, feeding tube, which I knew she wouldn't have wanted. And I had, in fact, written a late, uh, an end-of-life directive for her and my father, which my brother didn't know about. And had I been there, I would have said, no, she didn't want that. And the whole thing would have been uh, over more quickly, which I think is what she wanted. Hmm. But, you know, again, so there was guilt. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. it's yeah. hard. You have to... You have to um, um, you know, you can't control things. And when I mean, you're a writer, you can control how it's going to come out on the page. You can edit it. When you're a podcaster, you can control how it comes out. You edit it. Life does not allow those that editing. Uh, it just doesn't. Yeah. 100%. And I think, well, not I think, I know that no matter what circumstances, there's always an element of guilt. There's always 
part yeah. of us that has that feeling like, well, what if I did this differently? What yeah. if I said this? Or what if yeah, I... Yeah. And yeah. especially a parent. Um, I mean, my mother was um, a woman who was born in the United States and then sent back to rural Calabria, where she lived until she was 16. And, you know, she didn't she didn't really read English. She didn't she never really I mean, she spoke English very well, but she never she never she never she 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 still she, when she was going to have surgery, she asked my brother, what do you think? You know, so what we said really counted for her. Yeah, well, um, I'm drawn to that. Uh, what are they called? Uh, uh, I'm going to do the name wrong. Blue, blue, blue spots or something. Different parts of the world where uh, where people live to a, an older age. And there yeah. was a particular Italian community in the U.S. Uh, Rosetta, I think it was, and they were talking about because the prioritizing f the family unit, prioritizing community, so that what they ate had less of an impact than than that sense of community. So to me, what that says there is that strong sense of community from your mother. It's no coincidence that she's lived to, to that age if if that was kind of a big driver for you. Yeah, well, the thing is, the, it, <laughs> there was a lot of longevity in her family. Her father had lived to 105. Uh, all of her siblings lived into their uh, 96, 97. So you, know, you kind of assume, oh, well, this will go on forever, which is why it was kind of shocking when my brother died at 63. Oh, we both thought that we had these longevity genes, but maybe not. Yeah. 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 Um, you mentioned something there that, that I really want to highlight, and, and not just because you're a writer, but because I just know the power of it. Now, I, I'm a massive proponent of journaling because mm -hmm. I know the impact of getting the thoughts out of your head. And for me, it was writing as well. It was like, that's where all my unresolved stuff came to the surface was like, I was going through this process that I'd been taught by a mentor at the time, like letters of forgiveness around just getting all that stuff out. And for the, for the listeners, if you're going through or still going through any sort of grief or guilt or shame or any of the things that Mariana's mentioned, taking pen to paper is such a powerful act. And who knows, maybe, uh, maybe it does turn into something bigger if, if, uh, if it lights a fire within you as well. But ultimately the main thing is around the, the healing process that you described. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing that because it is, it is something that I know will be beneficial to many people. So you, you start getting it out. You start to realize you've got all this other stuff going on that's below the surface. You mentioned your, your infant son. So mm -hmm. how old were you when that happened? And like you said, like you didn't really like. Well, maybe if you could share a little bit about what that was like, if that's okay. And then, <laughs> well, okay, and then, let's see how that goes. I, uh, I was. Uh, it's it's interesting because I got married very young, um, and um, I my husband and I did not have children immediately, and then um, when we decided to have a child, it was very easy conception, um, um, and um, you know, first child was a boy, um, and. Everything seemed to be fine, except that he had a heart defect, and they um, um, they diagnosed it maybe on the third day that he was alive. And there again, there's a little bit of guilt because I kind of pointed out to them, "Why this heartbeats really fast and loud?" And she said, "Oh, baby's heart." But then they did further tests, and there was a um, well, what they thought was a hole in the heart, which was turned out not to be the case. Um, at any rate, um, I, I was 28, which in retrospect seems young, but I felt like, oh my God, when he died, like, oh, like life is over. Um, yeah. And then of course I couldn't conceive and I just, I just I couldn't conceive because I was so stressed out. 
um, and had a miscarriage. Um, and then finally had a, my, my daughter was born. Um, but, you know, it's painful to those children. Hmm. I, I can't imagine how tough, but I have spoken to people who have, and and it's it's just something that the sense I get is it's something that's not meant to happen. You're, you're not meant to outlive your No, child. I mean, but still, you know, you can't, you can't, I mean, I know that the, um, in the United States, we seem to be specializing in, in mass shootings these days, but mm-hmm. the, the mass shooting in, in Texas, I, you know, I, I wasn't the only one who was dissolved in tears, but my tears were very, they felt very personal. Yeah. These poor parents, not only this thing, but then the, the news cycles were putting them through this stuff over and over again. It was just, it was awful just awful yeah yeah and I, I mean like you can hear the emotion in your voice it's it's uh, again a credit to you to allow yourself that space because it's it is important for us to to be able to let it out even if we're triggered by like random events like we were talking about before we jumped on like how you know i was t- t- telling you about the you know specializing the unresolved and the unknown and you said yeah it's a long process yeah, absolutely, totally. <laughs> yeah, just ra- ra- randomly you'll have things come up that, that trigger yeah, you, right? Yeah. I mean, to give you an example, my typical, it typically takes me, and, and these are dense research. They're not, they, again, they, they don't read densely. They're they're very readable books. But it, a, a, a typical book for me will take you know, three to five years. <laughs> three, 12 years. It's very, it's slender. It's very shapely. It's almost poetic. Uh, but it took me 12 years because I just couldn't get it right. But I also mm. couldn't leave it alone. So I put it aside and I pick it back up and I try again. I couldn't let it go. And then finally, I just started whacking everything out of it that I couldn't make work. And I, and then, oh, there it is. It's got a shape. It's got a form. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious. This just came to me while you were talking. Is there an element of when, when a book project is finished, is there an element of grief because you've just dedicated your, your heart and soul to this thing and now it's over? That's one of the, one of the things that many people say. I'm not sure I would call it grief. Um, it's for me. It comes out as restlessness. I mean, I get like I'm, you know, restlessness until until something else begins to inspire that kind of dedication. Some people compare it to childbirth, but I think that's a, a facile kind of comparison. Because, yeah. um, but the um, but I, I think I think some people do experience um, a, a kind of postpartum moment with books and just the this. Uh, there's both the exhilaration of, ah, it's finished. And then there, there are many mundane tasks that have to then go into, um, you know, the, having it come into the world. Um, but this one took a very long time. And that was part of the story for me. Why did it take so long? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I guess also um, we were talking about. Uh, the, the, a phrase that you um, at, before we were ta- we, the, um, the the taping started the memory without pain idea, mm. uh, but I think the goal of uh, working through grief is to arrive at memory without pain. I mean, you wish to be able to think about um, this. May this may sound strange. One of the joys of losing someone, if there is such a thing. But yeah. one of the joys of losing someone is that they no longer exist at that last moment that you remember them or the last year that you remember them. They have become detached from time. And so you can tap into different moments of your acquaintance with them. 
So one of the bits of publicity this book got was in the Los Angeles Review of Books, LARB, in a section called Avidly. And the editor there asked for some photographs. I, I sent her a photograph of me. I must have been eight years old. I was playing the banjo. My brother was on the drums. And uh, she she loved the photograph and she ran it. And I thought at first, oh, it's stupid. It doesn't belong with this. And they thought, oh, sure it does. You know, because again, this the... the um, the family relationship becomes detached from time and you can tap into it at different moments. And the goal is to be able to do that and not to have it be a wrenching um, kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that memory without pain concept for a lot of people, they don't want to lose the pain because there is a comfort in it yeah. and it, it, it connects them to that person but you touched on on something which i think is probably the pivotal part when you are ready and you can find the joy in it then that's when everything changes and yes that can sometimes be a longer process because you're like how could how could anything from this be possibly good but but when you find that it's it is it, it is what it is and i've got to keep living and when you find that joy that's i've to me, that's just a that's a transformational process because you're able to, like you said, you can find a space for the memories without pain, and in fact, you can start tapping into more of those joyful memories and start bringing more of that into your life, which just creates such a an increase to your well being. One of the exercises I did, because when you're a writer, you sometimes do exercises, as you probably know as well. And one of the exercises I did when I felt I was arriving at that point was to recreate a memory for each of the beloved dead. So a memory about my father, a memory about my mother, a memory about my brother, and a memory that I had to have for the infant because the infant didn't have a memory. And doing that was just, I mean, it was just, it was an exhilarating essay. And um, when I did that, I realized that once again, there was a kind of connection to the experience of meditation because you kind of, um, I mean, your body is it. You live in your body. Um, yeah. You know, you aren't just your body. Um, and um, when, in the same way, accessing memory is a, is a, is, is a larger than body experience and it doesn't depend. On, on, on the existence of a living body. So anyway, there was a very, uh, I, that's actually one of my favorite essays in this book. It's called, um, it's, it's, the, it's the last essay in it. It's kind of a long one, but it was a, a very, very important one for me. Uh, funny, I can't remember what I called it. Because um, I was talking about food, fam my mother's recipes. Um, oh yeah, this, this essay was called Real Estate, Unreal Estate. And, um, the real estate is the um, the memories that we have. Yeah, you have a portfolio of memories that gets bigger yeah. time, and then the unreal estate uh, are these memories that kind of float free um, and and exist for you. And in the same way, our bodies are real estate rental. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's what yeah. we are. We're rental, um, but um, and but we're also you know obviously real too. <laughs> yeah, hundred yeah, percent. I'm just drawn to a conversation I had with, with uh, another woman, Karen Chaston. She lost her son when he was 20 or young, young 20s. And, of course, uh, incredible pain. Yeah. As she went through her grieving process, she, she came to the acceptance that, like she described it like this, my son and, and me, 
we sat down before we came into this world and we talked about this is going to be the journey we're going to have and this is why and now that might be a completely different experience for you but how have you been able to resolve that relationship with your son that was so brief and like how have you made sense of that in your mind Well, I haven't actually. <laughs> uh, certainly, uh, there, was, there was no time to work out any kind of agreement. I, I remember when I was <laughs> back then. Oh, I'm going to get emotional. Back then, what people say to you when something like that happens is, "Why you?" You know, and I uh, the um, uh, there was a woman in the, you know they, it was the, the period of doing Lamaze, so you did these birthing classes with people. And there was a young woman. She was such a you know she was such she she didn't want to be pregnant. You know, she just yeah you know one of these one of these people. And the and the the the, uh, the birthing teacher came to see me and she said, well, why not her? And, and yeah, I just I you can't think that way. Yeah. You know why? You know it, why why you? It's because it was you. You know that's just the way it was. Um, um, I, for me, I, well, I, I had more children, and I sort of concentrated on that. I, I, had, yeah. I, had, um, I had two other daughters, um, two daughters, and um, I ne- but I never really came to terms with it, no. I don't know if that helps or not. I really never did. No, it's, it's so. more, like, again, like I said to you before we jumped on, it's like any, any wisdom that you can pass on to other people. Well, there are certain situations in which life, like, you know, life gives you a lot of abundance and, oh, well, okay, now here's, I think this maybe is helpful. There's yeah. a play that was making the rounds in New York and I'd still get to produce in, in some places called Next to Normal. And uh, again, I took a class of college students to see this play. And after, after the play was over, everybody was pretty much an emotional wreck for different reasons because it touched different psychological vulnerabilities in, in everyone who was watching it. But the mother in the play uh, loses a child and can't love her other children because she lost the child. And I've got to say that that was, a, that was a possibility that never occurred to me. Uh, and I think it's a very sad possibility, um, and, and it's a very sad possibility in the play as well. So, um, I mean, that was, I guess, one possibility. And you know, I remember at the time um, some quite a bit older friends who had an autistic child saying to us, "You know, this it can tear couples apart." And it, it didn't tear my husband and I apart, but we also were aware that we had to we had to have made certain decisions. We, we had, you know, there was surgery involved. We had to make certain decisions and we couldn't look back on them. We couldn't say, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Hmm. Because that would just, you just couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine you must have incredible strength and resilience from going through that and well, everything you've done. I, I don't even know. I mean, I think they played most people have strength and resilience. <laughs> There's a lot to go through. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've never really, um, I actually don't consider life a process of one grief after another. It's just that there are certain moments in life where grief has come to you and you have to take it. It's, it's not going to, it's not going to say, you know, it's okay to give it up. You have to take it. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I like the idea that, uh, you know, we come into this world with, with a intention of 
continuing to heal whatever needs to be healed for our soul and if that's a journey we're meant to take then yeah yeah so be it and yeah. do our yeah. best to to resolve yeah. 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 You know, the books part of this was, I thought, going to be the heart of this book and turned out not to be the heart of this book, but it's still important. Um, one of the things I learned, um, and again, I'm an English professor, so when you're in grief, what do you do? You read. Yeah. Um, and I started reading the classics, and I did it in a very methodical way. Um, and, um, you know, started with the, the Greeks, <laughs> just coming forward because uh, the, and, and then I realized that that was part of why people read the class I, I discovered I was not unique I thought I was really being very original and I discovered I'm not unique a lot of uh, bookish people do read the classics at a time of grief and then I realized that it wasn't so much the classics because they're not wise and people are always told that these books are books of great wisdom they're actually not um, they're, they're books of great sadness and, and great frailty and great mistakes and great grief um, and I think that's why we read them, to be reassured mm. normal. But the real reason I think we read them is that there's a specific order and you're doing them. So it's like meditation. First you do this, then you do that, then you do this. And anything that gives you a sense of order, I think, in a grieving process is really, really important and really helpful. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. Because so often it feels like everything's been ripped away from us and we're left sort of dangling without anything to hang on yeah. to and yeah. bringing order and structure. Yeah, so powerful. Sometimes just one step at a time. Take that step. <laughs> Dang <Yeah>. it. <clears throat> and actually, my thoughts go here. So the order that came so after my dad's passing was there was a couple of weeks there where I spent a lot of time with my siblings and my mum and, and there was certain comfort in like that sort of routine but then eventually everyone has to go back to work and go back to their lives and to me that's when that that sense of uh, structure actually disappeared even though i was going back to work it was like well what now what like was that yeah. was that the experience yeah. for you no i think that i think that's a very common experience and i think the problem is it all starts to seem very insignificant yeah what the, you know, why, why should I be doing this? And then at some point you realize you're doing it because you really actually want to do it too. But um, it, it's really hard to, it's just hard. It's just hard. Um, my, fa my father's death was easier for me because my father was, um, there was a more of a process and we got to talk about it as it was happening. Um, but I remember when, uh, when the last time, the last set of times I saw him, I was also going to an academic conference, and I'd go to these meetings. What are you talking about? Why are you talking about this? You know, let me out of here. Um, yeah. But you know, at, the, at some point, then of course, I, 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 that that kind of went away too. But it's very hard to face the everyday task. Uh, when in the grief process, but it's also somehow essential to face the everyday task. Yeah. yeah, it is. Absolutely. You mentioned before that sense of restlessness when you when you finish a book. I'm, I'm curious, do you take the time to actually celebrate any way, like intentionally celebrate when a book goes out? I know you said there's some some smaller tasks that are necessary tasks that need to happen once you finish. Yeah. But there is there a place of pause where you go oh wow like oh yeah there's a great um if this was a visual i'd sort of show you moments when the book comes and then the cover is fantastic and, <laughs> yeah and you're so excited to hold it in your hands and ah 
Now, this is something, this is a loss, that the pandemic, one of the many losses that the pandemic has inflicted on people. Uh, you know, I, and I think everyone is kind of gradually coming to terms with the, the um, constriction, I guess is what I'd call it. But one of the things that used to happen was you'd go on book tours. You'd give readings in bookstores. You'd meet people. You'd, you'd, you'd have that kind of pleasure. And you'd, it's just not happening. It's just not happening. So, uh, and the, um, uh, the way that life has evolved, there are fewer reviews that appear. Um, and it's so, so uh, all, things come and go uh, with, with, with less fanfare and, and notoriety. But no, this, that's, that's a, boy, that's a great feeling when that happens. But I, I think my favorite thing is when you're obsessed about a book and you're talking about it and people are giving you material. Um, yeah. And uh, the, the book, uh, one book which is very successful called Gone Primitive about um, the way that uh, people in, in the Americas and in Europe regard um, tribal peoples. Um, and I, that was a book where everyone was giving me tidbits. And it was great. It was like, you know, kind of, um, there was not a dinner that was had that I didn't walk away with something that could go into the book. Wow. Uh, so I kind of like that. Uh, this book was a little bit like it because, um, <laughs> you know, when you get older, people die. And, and um, um, you know, it's uh, almost everyone is, is a lot of people are losing parents now. A good friend of mine is dying from pancreatic cancer, which is what my brother died from. And a friend of his, um, who's my friend too, uh, one said to me, we need younger friends. And that's part of the answer, but it's also, um, they, that's, again, that's just part of the experience. You just have to take it for what it is. That's been hard because um, my friend is making some of the same choices that my brother did, and I think they were the wrong choices. So it's hard to see him making those choices too. But mm. you know, again, they're his choices. He needs to make yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a hard place, isn't it? Yeah, Particularly if you've really experienced it. It really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but again, you raise a great point. It's letting people have their own choices is is yeah challenging but freeing. It's totally not my business to tell anyone else what to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do you fill that hole when you get the restlessness? How do you get yourself back into uh, a space that you're ready to write your next book, or is or is the restlessness eventually lead you to go? I need to um, get get back on the horse, so to speak. Oh, I'm think, I'm, I've got to give that a minute's thought. I, I mean, I suspect there are different ways. Well, one of the things that happens is you start other books in between, and sometimes those books don't happen. Uh, so that after I finished um, the books on primitivism, I wrote a, one sequel to it, so that was good. But then after that, I, I thought about writing a book on sexuality, um, and um, uh, the sex surveys were very big, um, and I, I, I was kind of interested in the Kinsey reports, how they had functioned, and there were a series of other reports that were coming out, um, in, you know, in the, in the first part of the 21st century, and I was interested in that, and that didn't go anywhere. 
Um, and then I got interested in um, urban destruction narratives. So I started a book on that and that didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and I'm laughing because from, I, 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 it's not that I, I write easily, but I don't have writer's block. So I, I'll get like 125 pages into it and say, nah, <laughs> nah. It's not going to work, and just and just let it go. So that's sometimes what happens. That's sometimes the transition to one. Um, I I mentioned that I've started writing novels, and uh, the first novel came to me. I was just I was walking through the forest with my husband, and um, this line, this paragraph, was coming into my head, and I said, "What is that? Who is that?" And I've taught novels, and novelists say that characters talk to you and I never believed them. I thought that's nonsense. Yeah. This character was talking to me and and this and she wrote the first version of the book. I mean just I'd sit down 50 pages, here we go. So wow. it, was, it was it was like great. It was it was like a transcendent experience. And then my agent at the time didn't like the book, so I rewrote the whole thing. And I should have just left it because that's how she wanted the book. Uh, but anyway, um, so they so yeah sometimes you just wait for the inspiration to come to you. Um, as an academic, sometimes you have to make a willful decision, but I've written enough books that I don't feel that kind of pressure. I can do what I want to do, which is, mm. which is good. Yeah. And, and clearly, as you said, without writer's block, you can, it's not like you have to go, oh, but what if I can't get another idea? It sounds like you've got so many ideas swimming around. No, I have a lot of ideas. One of the things, again, for any of your uh, audience who are writers, one of the things that I think is hard now for writers, and I, to some extent it is a matter of grief, is that the um, there's so much chatter online, so much chatter online, so much chatter online, that you, you find yourself working on something, and I'll be darned if somebody else isn't doing the same thing. Now, that never used to happen. That never used to be, ha- that happens. You, people might be working on similar topics, but it wouldn't be coming out uh, along the same lines at all. But because yeah. we're all, you know, getting the same materials via the media, there's much. it's much more likely that somebody will be doing pretty much exactly what you're doing. Um, Interesting. And that's that's hard. I, my, my, the one like that for me was a, I, uh, right after the 08 um, financial meltdown. Um, yeah. I, I started uh, reading a lot of books about the Great Depression, and then I became interested in depression entertainment, movies, um, songs, games. And again, I wrote like about 150 pages, and then uh, somebody who I actually knew uh, came out with a book. It was, it was not the book that I was writing, but it made me realize that there wasn't room for two of them. And um, he had run into the same problem I was running into, which was summarizing 1930s movies because people hadn't seen them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so there, there things like that. And was is that a grief? It is because it, it's it's it means that the conditions of writing, which I had loved, were no longer in existence or have changed, and needed to be adapted to. And I guess the larger grieving message is things have changed; they need to be adapted to. Mm. I've got to be honest. I'm. I'm really curious to read your book because the one that you haven't finished because to me that was such a pivotal moment in my life too was that that crisis because it was like it had me thinking about like life and my future in a whole different way because I was like oh what yeah. like your your financial future is at the mercy of, of a whole lot of things out of your control yeah. Like, yeah yeah I mean we may be we may be experiencing that very soon again because I I, I think that 
the conjunction of circumstances right now, I mean, it, well, it's obviously unprecedented. When was the last time the world experienced a pandemic which threw a monkey wrench into everything? Well, that was that would have been the end of World War One. That's a long time ago. Uh, so um, we may be experiencing that again. But again, I teach college, and those kids, you know, the kids, they're, eight, they're 19 or 20, they remember vaguely the unsettled feeling in their family uh, after that. And now, you know... <laughs> I don't know how it was in Australia, but in America, the classes went online for about a year. And I do the online classes and I, you know, I'd always talk to them and the the seniors would say, oh, it's terrible to be a senior during the pandemic. And the juniors would say, it's terrible to be a junior during the pandemic. And, you know, and so it would went and you had to say, yeah, it's pretty bad, guys. (laughs) Yeah, the the people I felt for, like both my children were in high school, so... They, they were online and they were fine. But it, the, the parents of those younger children that, that had to be more interactive in their classes, I think people got a whole new appreciation of teachers because <laughs> uh, suddenly they're having to do do yeah, some of those yeah, elements. It's really um, hard on people with Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Challenging time. But I, I mean, like what we know is that these moments will continue to happen through history, the ups and the downs, and, and they all bring more grief. I, I think what you describe now, I, I get the sense of how like the interactions I've had is now does very much feel like the end of a war. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of tiredness. There's a lot of uh, residual f- frustration and, and all sorts of stuff going on for people. Uh, yeah, it will be an interesting little time as people make sense of what they've just been through. It, it's and one of the questions for me, and I think it's an open question, is whether people are going to make sense of what they've gone through. Uh, I'm in New York right now, and uh, one of the things I've noticed uh, is a the population is younger than it used to be. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have left the city, and, and uh, it's the summertime, so people do leave the city in the summertime. But the population is very young. And there's a kind of, um, it's not desperation exactly, but it's a kind of over-exuberance. You know, we are having fun. We are having fun. And there's, there's, a, real, there's a real kind of determination. I do think, I mean, I think that's actually a very apt way of putting it. I hadn't thought of that. But it is a little bit like after a war, it's a mess. And you know, and, and some things are not coming back, and 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 some things are, are. Do we just accept that? Do we try to make them come back? Um, it's been it's it's interesting to see how people are are behaving. Um, I I drove through um, Chinatown yesterday, and in Chinatown, people are still wearing masks, in part because it's part of the Asian culture to wear a mask when there's sickness around. In most of New York, yeah. no. Yeah, it's it's fairly similar here. The, most have moved on, but I guess it just depends on like your own personal circumstances. And I've had conversations with people, and it's like you choose what's right for you. Like, yeah. and, and, and it's it's become a kind of choose your own adventure thing. It's really yeah. how it should be. And I guess that's the way it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I like you ask the question: Well, will, will people deal with it? I think everyone will deal with it in their own way. It's just how how like it's been at any other point in the journey, how much they're prepared to to process it will determine how well they come out the other side. Yeah, and- but I'm, I'm very struck by the numbers. Um, and in the United States, I, yeah, I didn't even know what the latest numbers are, but it, we, we, they, there was a lot of publicity around one million dead. I suspect it must be more like a million one, maybe a million two. Now, that's a lot of people. It's just a lot of people. 
Yeah, I come I come back to the same place, which is like the actual numbers of people dying year on year hasn't increased significantly. And that doesn't make it right or wrong or anything else. It's just like people die, people leave this world constantly. Like we need to make sure we're making sense of it for, for all of our own personal circumstances best we can because it's just a part of life. Yeah. And, and I think that's like you can get caught in like the, the magnitude of it or you can go to your own place of what you need to resolve through it, which is going to be the most powerful act. You mentioned when you were writing that, that walk through the forest and, and that the character yeah. speaking to you directly. I, I'm, to me, that sounds like being in the zone. From, like from me, from a sporting background, it's like that moment where everything just unfolds automatically, effortlessly. You know what's coming next. It just seems to flow out of you. Do you have any being, thoughts on... Being on in the being zone is totally the way to go if you can get there. It doesn't, as you know, it doesn't happen all the time. Uh, yeah. But um, I, one of the, you do it regularly. And, and then sometimes your best writing takes place in one day and that's yeah. that's it that essay comes out it is perfect and yeah. maybe maybe you change a comma maybe you change a word and that that's it and that's a great that's just a great feeling um but um i i actually think that does not so easily happen in grief i think you're you're you have to be in a more relaxed um uh, you have to uh, there's a metaphor which i like of attunement you just have to be you know in a state of attunement uh, with uh, with everything around you in the universe for that to happen, and then it does. Yeah, boy, I love that because I was going to ask you about finding the zone because uh, having that repeatable process for me is is one of the the great joys. I, I'm I'm by no means an extensive author. I've I've offered two chapters to those um, joint publication books. The first one was like pulling teeth. It took me months to write, and I'm still not happy about how it went out. The other one I literally wrote in two hours, in two, two one-hour settings where it just rolled out, and like you described, it was like the only – the editors changed some punctuation, but apart from that – and I was like, how do I do more of that? Yeah, and, that's uh, great. Yeah. So, so do you have any, any processes that you use to try and – stimulate that zone or is it more just it happens at different times and doesn't at others? It happens at different times. One of the things I do, um, and I, I don't think this is unusual either, um, I, I find that there are certain, for me, I have to know how something's starting. It's just, I just have to know how it's going to start. So um, I could be driving along and if that beginning sentence comes to me, I pull over I write it down. Yeah. So I have uh, I have starts of books on backs of checks and you know I you know piece of rent back of receipts and that kind of thing. But when I'm feeling a little more organized, I have a notebook and I I, I put it down in the notebook. And sometimes it changes because one of the things that writers usually well for me anyway, what begins as the beginning can become the end, and mm, vice versa. Yes. Um, yeah. So. Um, and, be, and actually, as a writer, I've written about how narratives end. And when you write about primitivism, you're writing about how things begin. So I've always been interested in beginnings and endings. So for me, they can flip. Uh, but it's very important to be able to capture the words when they come to you. Mm, absolutely. Now, again, I'm comparing myself to a very, very different uh, magnitude. What is your sport? What is your sport? Oh, what I is played your sport? All sorts of sport. I played all sorts of sport. Okay. Uh, played soccer, football, uh, cricket, which you're probably less familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but I'm a, I'm a big supporter of a lot of different sports as well. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated more these days. Well, actually not these days, always have been about the interactions between the different teammates, uh, how you create that unity to, to for the, the higher goal. That's um, the equivalent of that in writing is to have a writer's group, which is working great guns. And I was very lucky to be in a writer's group, which was like that for 11 years. And it was like, ah, oh, it was just like getting in a warm bath with your fellow writers and trusting them absolutely. It was just terrific. Yeah. I think whatever field you're in, having that comfort of, of, a, of a team where you, where you feel, yeah, like you described, right, that warm bath feeling where you can just talk about anything and feel like it's being yeah. received in the right way, yeah. so important. I just want to ask one more question if you've got a little bit more time before we talk about some of your uh, things you've got going on in the future and also tell people where they can find the book. You mentioned that that concept around being a Italian-American and grief being shameful. So it's a two-part question, like having that particular cultural experience, then shifting into a new cultural experience where you married someone from a different background and then that concept of shame coming into all of that, like how how deep rooted is that, and how you're able to to change your beliefs and, and actions around that? Well, <laughs> again, it's it's a real question whether you ever change your beliefs. You can change your actions, but whether you change your beliefs is something else. Um, uh, the the concept in in in, in Italian culture is called la bella figura which is which essentially translates as uh, the beautiful figure or looking good in the eyes of others. And uh, the desire for la bella figura is very deep in Italian and Italian-American culture. Um, it, it's, it also appears in Southern culture because I teach in the South. I, I, I see it there too. And it, um, um, you know, it just, it's a, it, it, it implies a certain amount of repression and you know, denial and just forgetting. And I mean, denial and forgetting are important mechanisms too um, in, in grief. I mean, I, I, I think we, we, our culture tends to emphasize awareness um, and you know, rightfully so, but, but there are certain things you actually do have to f just move on from and, and not, and repression's probably not so good, but just move on, you know, just, like, just move on. So uh, there, there is that. Um, it also, in, I, I don't, I, you know, I, it, it's hard to describe, but I, I saw it in my, my nephew when my brother was dying as well, um, the feeling that somehow there was something wrong if you weren't doing well. And, and when somebody's dying, you're not doing well. Yeah. It's it just, it's just, it's, it, it, and you have to, there's not, there actually, it's, there's not, it's, there's, there's no fault uh, in it, but, you know, they're, they're, but they're, they're, it, it, it is hard for certain cultures and certain personalities to accept that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it probably shows up in a different way, but I'd say that's true for a lot of Western cultures. It's like the comparison or the the judgment from. from yeah, um, I mean the the old the Puritans that you know that that if you were if you were profitable in the world you were a righteous person you know and, and providence had favored you. It's it's a version of the same thing, a little less materialistic, um, or that's more materialistic than what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mariana. Thank you for sharing so openly. There's so much gold in there for for people who have gone through any of the experiences that you described, losing people and and the other elements, particularly the riding. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for having me.
you're welcome. Now, we'll put the link in the show notes for how people can find access to your most recent book, Crossing Back, Books, Family, Memory Without Pain, but also your uh, your other books because, uh, like you said, this is a sequel and you've got some other ones which yeah. I'm, I'm already fascinated with, particularly the uh, the primitive one that you mentioned. But you've also got some new projects coming up so oh, please yeah, do yeah. share yeah yeah okay so i have i have two novels so if anyone out there is uh is is, is interested in helping with novel publication by all means get in touch uh one is uh, a, a fictional uh, biography of uh, georgia o'keefe the american artist and um it tries to capture her before she became the austere artist that we know and was a somewhat more insecure person who, whose future did not look quite as clear. Uh, the second one is a novel about World War II, um, and um, it's, um, it's, it's a time travel novel. <laughs> I'm not sure where that came from, but it did. And it's, it's really good, and it draws upon my novel of, um, of World War II, and it's a kind of a romantic novel. And um, um, I guess, I mean, it's not Outlander, but it has a little bit of Outlander spirit in it. So I thought, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it makes its way into the world. Um, but you know, again, I, I enjoy writing, and uh, the pleasure of writing is very real for me. Mm, wow, they both sound like they should be movies or series. Hopefully, <laughs> not as dark as Outlander. What? I said, hopefully, not as dark as Outlander. Well, I, 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 Outlander is. I mean, it's not that dark. It's pretty. It's well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's just the uh, the uh, my less tolerance for uh, gore and um, oh and, well. uh, and um, human uh, denigration perhaps that's uh, where I where I say dark. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's a pretty. It's a pretty. It's a it's a good read and a pretty good television show too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, both of those sound fascinating. Uh, thank you and. Is there somewhere where people can find you on social media or a website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a website, which is my name, Mariana Torgovnik. Oh, you see it on the screen or you'll see it on the podcast. And then uh, I also teach at Duke University in North Carolina. And so you can find my name there. Uh, But the website is Mariana Torgovnik, (laughs) veryoriginal.com. And then the books, all my books are on Amazon and available in Kindle. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've got um, my books are very readable, uh, meant for people like you. Um, and I hope uh, I hope you, you, do, you dive into them. Gone Primitive is one people love. Crossing Ocean Parkway is one people love. And then the sequel to Crossing Ocean Parkway is Crossing Back. Excellent. Well, after talking to you, I imagine they'll be very readable because I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been quite uh, easy and flown really nicely. So thank you so much. Thanks, Ian. Good night. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.